call to worship this morning is from the book of Romans, chapter 8, verses 18 to 30. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. And we, know for those, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Jesus Christ has set you free. Hallelujah. Free at last. Free at last. Thank God Almighty. Free at last. Let's join together in a prayer of confession. And we'll take some time quietly this morning to come face to face with God, confessing our own personal sin and asking for his forgiveness. Let's pray. as the prophet Isaiah says, O wretched man that I am, I am not worthy in your sight. I sin and sin and sin. And you are a good God and you are a grateful Lord that we confess our sins and repent of our sins. You are gracious in your forgiveness. Merciful in your forgiveness. And Lord, we lean on your grace, we lean on your mercy, we lean on your love this morning, and we ask that you forgive us. Forgive us of things that we ought to do and don't do, and the things that we do when we ought not. And you know. The best part of all of this, God, is that you hear us. You are God and you hear us. We don't have to ask you to listen to us, you do. You listen to your people, you hear your people, and you cry out to you, Father, for grace. We thank you, Lord, that you are that way, that you are a God who forgives his people. We bless you, Lord. You are great and greatly to be praised, and we worship you. And we do pray, Lord Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on us. The Westminster Confession of Faith, Shorter Catechism, question 71. I will read the question and you can all read the answer together. What is required in the seventh commandment? The seventh commandment requires us to preserve our own and our neighbor's chastity in heart, 
speech and behavior. Now, if the kids will all come forward. Okay, Michael's going to come up here and help me in just a minute. Can you, can you guys kind of make a little bit more room right there for these two young ladies to sit down? All right, I have a question for you all this morning. What do you do when you get excited? What do you do? What do you do? Say what? You say yay. What else do you do when you get excited? What do you do? What do you do, Emma, when you get excited? Ella, what do you do? You told me yesterday. You said, I say yes. That's a yeah. You think about that. When you get excited, you jump, you shout, you clap your hands, you laugh, you celebrate. You're really excited. That's what I do. When, but you know what I really like to do when I get excited? This will scare you. I love to dance. You ever think about that? Do you ever get so excited that you want to dance? Well, this morning, Michael's going to come up here and help us because, you know, I don't sing. But I want you all to stand up and I'm going to teach you how to do a dance this morning. Come on. Come on. Come on, I need you to get in a circle. Get in a big circle. Come with me, girls. Come over here. I want you to get in a circle. Come on around here. All right, you guys are doing good. This may take a while. Brian, you'll have to cut your sermon short. This is going to take a little longer than I thought. Come on. Come on. This way. Do you, is, is English a foreign language? Come on, guys. Now, do you know how to do the hokey pokey? Do you know how to do the hokey pokey? You put your right arm in, you put your right arm out, you put your right arm in, and you shake it all about. Then you do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself <laughs> around. That's what it's all about. You wanna do that? That's what we're gonna do. You ready? Michael's gonna play. You're gonna have to do it. Don't be embarrassed. Trust me. Put your right arm in, put your right arm out, Put your right arm in and you shake it all about. Then you do turn around, do the hokey pokey, and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. Now, here's the best part to the song. At the very end of the song, you put your whole self in and you put your whole self out. You put your whole self in and you shake it all about. Then you do the hokey pokey and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. Okay, one more time. Put your whole self in. Come on. You put your whole self out. You put your whole self in, and you shake it all about. Then you do the hokey pokey, and you turn yourself around. That's what it's all about. Hey, all right, now. I wonder if it'll take you as long to sit down as it did to stand up and get in a circle. Um, sit back down there again. I'm going to tell you how this works. You may not know this. You might. But a very important man in the Bible danced. Did you know that? King David. Remember, you've heard of King David. He was the greatest king in the history of Israel until Jesus. King David was an awesome guy. And he actually danced. He got so excited. He got so excited about God that he danced. They were carrying the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem to put it in the temple. This Ark had the Ten Commandments in it and all sorts of other good stuff. And David was leading the parade. 
he got so excited about God that he vanished. Now, think about that for a minute, that when you get excited about God, when you get excited about Jesus, you put your whole self into worship. And it's okay to be expressive in worship. The pros and chosen out there may not agree with me this morning, but the reality of our lives is that we, when we worship Jesus, we put our whole selves into it, and that's what we want to do, okay? Let's pray together. God, thank you for this morning. Thank you that you call us to worship you when you call us to worship you with our whole selves. So that as we worship you this morning and on this day and every day, we'll put our whole selves in it. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, there are many who are aching right now. Life hurts for whatever reason, a loss, a rejection, a missed opportunity, a death, a sin that's worn bitter fruit. Father, I think of John and Kathy Schilling's daughter, Kelly, and her husband who someone you love over on the other side, Lord, it, it makes it so this world is not as attractive and the world to come is, is a whole lot more desirable. Most of us have got someone we love on the other side. We're aching to see them. So we ask you to give us patience as we walk through this world and give us a heart Father, we pray for our church, and we ask that you would continue to protect her and watch over her and shelter her, even in the midst of the storms all around her. We pray that this church would be a, a beacon and a lighthouse, a place that is fixed and sure, where the truth of the gospel goes forth not only from the pulpit, but from the lives of the people who sit in the seats day in and day out. Whosoever will may come and be saved. Father, we lift up our nation. Many of us are so concerned. We see uh, a nation that's not just divided, but bitterly divided and polarized. 
tribal life. We see people who don't merely want to reform the system to try and make them better. They want to call it a law and tear them down, put something up in their place. And every time that's been tried, Father, nearly every time, it's been a tragedy of epic proportions, and there's no reason to suppose that it would be any better this time. Father, we ask for courage for your people as the, the culture grows darker. We ask that you would give us the ability, first of all, to rest in you and trust in you and give our lives and our livelihoods up to you. And then we ask, O oh Lord, that you would give us the courage in the wisdom to speak or not to speak as is best and as you lead. pray that in all these things, dear God, you would be glorified in our lives. We pray for the other churches in town, Father, the Bible-believing churches that are preaching and teaching your word. We might be divided from them by doctrines about baptism or the gifts of the Holy Spirit or election and predestination or any number of things. Those are our brothers and sisters in Christ. You called them just like you called us. Someday we'll see you clearly and we'll have the answers to all of our questions. But for right now, we kind of stumble about and sometimes our stumbling is disruptive and sometimes it's silly. But we can stop and we can say, well, whatever we might think about one thing or another, we can pray your blessing on that church over there and that church over there. We do so now. Give their pastors unction and fill them with your Holy Spirit and send revival recognize as we think about it carefully that revival is not something that can be manufactured by human beings inducing people with excitement revival comes when the holy spirit falls on us and we ask oh lord that you would send your spirit and fall on your church and put the message out father we pray for those who are struggling with some kind of health problem whether it would be crippling depression that can overwhelm us or anxiety that can rise within us, schizophrenia, bipolar disorder which tears at the fabric of our reality, or for grieving hearts, or for arthritic bodies that are enduring pain on a daily basis, or for acute infections of whatever else might be away at our physical being. And we pray your healing power to be upon those who suffer, and we pray that you would give them patience in their affliction, and that uh, their affliction would not color their views of the goodness of this world and the goodness of God. We pray, Father, for our leaders and those in authority, as you have commanded us to do, and we ask that you would bless them with wisdom and insight, that they would be restrained from doing evil and helped in doing good. We pray for our brothers and sisters in churches all over the world. In some places, it is dangerous to follow you. It is deadly to follow you. And you've called your sheep to yourself in those places. And they are utterly exposed to this attack. And there are savage wolves that can tread them to their core. So we pray that you would protect our brothers and sisters in Christ in China and in India parts of Africa where Christianity is seeing its hostility. We pray for our brothers and sisters who live in poverty and they don't know the riches that we have. And yet, oh Lord, somehow in our poverty, or in our riches rather, we have a kind of poverty that they don't have. We have a spiritual poverty. We think that we see, we think that we're strong, we think that you have blessed us and we are comfortable and therefore it's a good thing for us to be comfortable but for some of us it's not been a good thing at all we live lazy we pray that you would cause us to repent and we pray that we would learn from their example their zeal as they stand before kings and princes and police officers and commissioners and judges and they say I love Jesus he has saved me and I will bow to no other I will not deny him give us some of that courage there are many other things that we might lift up, Father. But the human memory 
have to leave these things with you to, before a word is on our tongue. We know it completely, and we are content, therefore, to offer up to you the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, saying, Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. The deacons would come down with the offering, and we will stand and sing the doxology together. Father, everything we have came from you and it belongs to you. You loan it to us for a little while to use in this world. And when you loan it to us, we think, oh, look what I got. Look how strong and smart and clever I am. Father, you've blessed us and you've given us the ability to provide for ourselves and for others. We thank you for that and we worship you with our gifts and our offerings. We pray your blessing on the giver. We pray your blessing on the giver. Jesus' name. Let's be seated. <clears throat> Our text this morning is the last uh, sermon on this passage. It's been ongoing for several weeks. And uh, we'll get my sermon illustration later on. It's from Ephesians chapter 1, uh, verses 5 through 10, and we're actually, as we did, have done every other week, we're going to back up a little bit into verse 4. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven Father, we ask this morning that you would make your book live for us. It is alive. It's we who need to be quickened to hear and see and understand. We pray that you would do that now. Master, teach as thy servant listens, waiting upon that great commission. In Jesus' name we pray. Well, um, a few years ago, I watched a documentary on TV produced by National Geographic uh, called The Last Feast of the Crocodile. And uh, it's on YouTube if you want to watch it uh, now. It's about 53 minutes long. It's filmed at a small pool, which in better times was part of a fairly large river in the northeast corner of the nation of South Africa. And as the as the film opens, there's a drought that's developing. And on account of the drought, the river has dried up and stopped flowing. And this pool, which was once just a deep place in the river, is now the only water for miles around. And all of the creatures of the savanna must come here to this pool to drink. But the pool is filled with over a hundred large crocodiles, as well as a giant herd of hippos. And the film starts off nice enough. It shows you here's a little birdie, and they're laying their eggs on the nest, and here's a here's a monkey, and and uh, you know here's a porcupine, and and all these here's the zebras, and 
you know, it, it starts off nice. It's something you think, okay, I can show this to my kids. But I don't recommend it. Because the film documents the relentless shrinking of this pool in the withering 120 degree heat of a drought that is the most severe in living memory for the people in that area. And it documents it week after week. And as the pool shrinks, it squeezes all of the crocodiles into a smaller and a smaller space and it makes approaching what becomes a mud hole to try and drink increasingly hazardous for the other creatures. And yet they are compelled by thirst, by necessity, by the desire to survive, to try and drink. And so we're treated to scenes of various animals, birds, baboons, even antelope trying to drink and keep from being eaten by the crocodiles. And some of them succeed. Some of them are attacked and manage to free themselves with varying amounts of damage. And many of them are taken and become food. And of course, when one crocodile grabs something, all the other crocodiles want it too. And so you have this tug of war and they start rolling vigorously in the mud trying to rip the thing apart. And the film does a good job of presenting the constant visceral terror that these animals undergo who are just trying to survive. And by the end of the film, you begin to see the main message that its creators want you to take away from the film because the pool completely dries up and all around it are the skeletons of the animals who died from lack of water. So they escape the fierce jaws of crocodiles only to perish in the withering heat and drought. And almost all of the crocodiles who have been the dispensers of death, the film actually calls them the artists of violence, they also perish for the lack of moisture. And their desiccated bodies surround the dried up pool. And you look at that and you go, nature is very cruel. Nature is very brutal. And what they're trying to do is they're trying to grab you by the scruff of the neck and rub your nose in that fact with their film. We are made to see that nature is beautiful, but nature is also a nightmare of terror and violence and decay and death. Now, modern man has, for the last 150 years, been engaged in a culture-wide project of trying to craft a way of life and an ethics around the observation of nature and who's God out. And it starts with the assumption that nature is, as we see her now, nature red of tooth and claw. Nature is all there is, and it's all there ever was, and it was always like this. Life is a struggle for existence, they see. It's marked by violent competition for scarce resources. It's an ongoing struggle to eat and not be eaten. Die in the crocodile's jaws. Or die in the jaws of the drought, but die. There's no meaning, there's no purpose, there's no good, there's no bad. There's a, the only duty one has if one wants to bother to embrace it is to survive long enough to reproduce and then to die. That, that way of looking at the world, they say we look at what is and we decide then what ought to be. And in this way of looking at things, there are no morals. It's not that the crocodiles are evil and the baboons are good because then the baboons turn around and do ugly things to the other animals. There's no right, there's no wrong, there's no God, there's no good, there's no evil, there's no life after death, there's just death, and often a violent death. And modern man, beginning at the end of the 19th century, said, that's reality. We've finally woken up as a civilization from the dream that Christianity has peddled to us, that the world is a good place and there's good beyond it. Now, how shall we live in light of this brutal 
And their answers varied. For instance, the Nazis, drawing from the philosophy of Nietzsche and the music of Wagner, said, well, we human beings are engaged in a survival of the fittest also, and we're competing for scarce resources with one another, and all the various races and ethnic groups are more adapted or less adapted to this task, and we Aryan Germans are the most adapted, so we should exterminate the lesser groups that are sucking up precious resources. And in that, they were joined all over the world by people who believed in eugenics, who said, you know, you wouldn't breed a, 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 the good cow with a bad cow, you would only breed your good cow with the best uh, bull that you could find, and, and so why would you let people that are inferior breed? The Marxist-Leninists also noticed that evolution supposedly produced better and better adapted uh, organisms, and it said, well, evolution is a process of improvement, and we think that applies not only to the bodies of animals, but also to human beings and their social and political structures and their economic structures, and we want to take hold of that process, and we want to shape our own evolution, our own destiny, bringing about what we think is a just society for the worker by eliminating the overlords of capitalism. And they thought of their system as scientific. They actually called it scientific Marxism or scientific Leninism. Because to Western people, science is the only valid way of acquiring knowledge. So if you can wrap something in the mantle of science, that gives you instant respectability, whether it's natural science or not. In the United States, Ernest Hemingway's writing was bathed in this idea. One of Hemingway's most famous quotes, life is a dirty trick. It's a short journey from nothingness to nothingness. And of course, when his life became unsatisfactory, he put a shotgun in his hand and he pulled the trigger. There were in France philosophers of a school called existentialism. One of them was a famous philosopher named Jean-Paul Sartre and he articulated his life's worldview in a novel called Nausea. And in that novel, the main character, a man named Requantin, goes to the park on a summer day and is suddenly overwhelmed with a vertigo and a nausea induced by his realization that existence is totally meaningless. And he writes, every existing thing is born without reason, prolongs itself out of weakness, and dies. So in effect, Sartre would say to the baboon in our documentary film, hey, Mr. Baboon, there's no purpose or reason for you being born. You flee the jaws of the crocodile in terror, but all that means is that you're going to bake to death in a few weeks. If you were a courageous monkey, you'd just march down to the pool and fling yourself into the mouth of the nearest crocodile and get it over with. You only try to survive because you're too much of a coward say the same thing to a man or a woman. The rising movement today, known as transhumanism, sees our bodies as only so much raw material that can be shaped and reshaped however we feel like, and it, ins it, in it insists that the next step in our evolution as a species is to fuse biology with machines. Computers hold the key to immortality. Robotics will strengthen weakening bodies and give us newer and better body parts when our old ones wear out. We can manipulate our babies genetically before we implant them in the womb through genetic engineering so we can produce designer babies. Just in the last few weeks, scientists in Australia admitted to genetically engineering embryos that were part human and part monkey. And the embryos divided normally and they were destroyed after they reached a certain size but scientists admit that there's no reason why if the embryos had been implanted either in a human or a monkey female, that they would not have resulted in a live birth of a mutant creature of a chimera. And if all of this sounds hellish to you, it's because it is literally hellish. There's a guy, Peter Singer, who's a champion of ethics. He's been awarded all these prizes as an ethicist. He teaches at Princeton. He's an animal rights ethicist. He's a vegetarian. 
he's also said that mentally disabled babies should be able to be executed within a certain number of weeks of birth because they're not human. They're subhuman. The interesting thing is Peter Singer is Jewish, and his parents escaped uh, Austria and moved to Australia in 1936. So he had aunts and uncles that were considered subhuman by the Nazis and exterminated in the camps. And so you see how it is. Clever people, apart from God, estranged from God, draw their thinking, their darkened thinking from nature. And they look to nature and they look at what is and they draw from that lesson what ought to be. And it's a false lesson. But in Ephesians chapter 1, and especially in verses 9 through 10, Paul tells us something that the worldling does not know and does not understand. Part of the riches that have been lavished on us by God in wisdom and in insight, one of those gifts is wisdom and insight. As a Christian, you have access in Christ and in the scriptures to a wisdom and an insight that our most brilliant human thinkers don't have because they don't have Christ. And the Apostle Paul says that one of the bits of wisdom and insight that we have is what he calls the purpose which God set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time. In other words, Paul's saying, I'm going to tell you why, at least one reason, why God did saved you. He has a plan for the fullness of time, and he calls that plan a mystery, a mystery. Now, in our culture, a mystery is something you can figure out if you pay attention to the clues. If you're smart enough, and if you're observant enough, you can figure out the mystery. But that's not what a mystery is in the Bible. In the Bible, a mystery is something that you could not know, you cannot know, something impossible for you to know unless God tells you. And so it's the revealing of something which was completely hidden before. So Christian, in Christ, you have access to wisdom and insight that was hidden. No telescope could spot it. No microscope could search it out. It's not discoverable by logic or by mathematics or by chemistry or by physics. And what is this mystery? He tells us in verse 10, in the fullness of time, he says, God will unite all things in Christ. Things on heaven, or things in heaven, and things on earth. Now that word unite is a special and a unique word. It only appears one other time in the whole rest of the New Testament in the book of Romans. It was very rare in the secular Greek as well. It was reserved for special cases within the arts, the theater, or within philosophy, or within legal disputes. And the core of the word is a Greek word, kephale, which refers to the head, but it also refers to the source. Like, for instance, we talk about the headwaters of a river, or it refers to the ideal the idea that whatever was made first was perfect and everything that came after is kind of a a less perfect copy. Or it refers uh, to uh, the, um, the first thing that was made. And so then it has a prefix in front that means again. So it's sometimes used to refer to like the conclusion of a lengthy argument where the main points would be summed up, would be repeated briefly to help the hearer or or the hearer or the reader grasp the whole picture. It also refers to gathering things up, which have been scattered. And it can refer to putting things back in a correct and ordered relationship with the other things in the group. So let me give you an example where, where this word might be used if we were all Greek speakers. When your child works one of those kind of easy child uh, jigsaw puzzles, you know, it's maybe got 20 pieces or whatever, and they, they work it by themselves for the first time, and they're so excited, and they run, and they get you, 
because they want to show you proudly what's been done. And as your daughter is running to get you, her evil little brother sees the puzzle and destroys it and disconnects all the pieces, just messes it all up, throws it on the floor. And so when you come in with your child to see the puzzle, all she can show you is a ruin because the pieces are now jumbled up and they're not in a proper relationship to each other. And what do you do? Well, if you're like me, you spank the naughty one. And then you sit down with your grieving child and you work the puzzle again together until all the pieces fit like they're supposed to and the picture looks just like the picture on the box. And what you and your child have done in reworking the puzzle to bring order out of chaos could be described by this Greek verb, anakephalia. And the thought is, Jesus is going to take all of the jumbled up pieces of the jigsaw puzzle of the created order that lie in a mess in this fallen world, and he's going to put them back together again and reveal God's perfect picture, the picture that's on the box, the box of life. So let's just stick with this metaphor for a minute because I think it's helpful. When the intellectual elites of the 19th, 20th, and now the 21st century decide to reject the idea of God and reject the Bible, they deprive themselves of many important things. One of the things they deprived themselves of was that the idea that that jumble of pieces that we see in front of us, what we call today nature, wasn't always like it is now. It once had an order, and a very different order. And the pieces all fit together in a certain way. And when they were rightly assembled, this creation was not a nightmare of terror covered over with a sprinkling of beauty. It was all good and all beautiful. All the suffering, all the horror that we see in the National Geographic documentary is not an original thing. It's not a good thing. It's certainly not something we should be using to try and understand who we are and how we should behave. I love it when people trot out, you know, when we're talking about some kind of human behavior. Usually this is around sexuality, not always, but they trot out and they say, well, this happens in the animal kingdom as well, so it's perfectly natural. And I want to say to them, yeah, and ducks gang rape. And chimpanzees will, will um, a male, if, if a female has a baby from another male, and he'll just kill that baby and, and mate with the mother to produce offspring that are his but because animals do that should we then do that too should we just start murdering babies and killing them no please don't what is is not what ought to be and one day jesus will come and he will put all the pieces back together again so that the creation looks like the picture on the box so let's take a peek at the picture on the box shall we Turn in your Bibles, if you've got one, to Genesis chapter 1, and we're just going to see something. We're just going to pull one thread out of this, just to, to get you excited. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 through 31. This is the crowning event of the creation. Genesis 1, 26. Then God said... Let us make man in our image and after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all that creeps on the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So right there, you can say, you are not a turbocharged monkey. You are not just another kind of mammal wandering around on this planet. Not You're special. You're different. There was an article in the New York Times three or four weeks ago about all the gymnastics that the philosophers have tried to, uh, have tried to put into effect in order to prove that human beings are not the same thing as squirrels. And it's like, 
why, why are human beings so hell-bent on not thinking of themselves like other creatures? It's a virtue that we think of ourselves like the other creatures, that we don't think of ourselves as better than the other creatures. Why would we want to think of ourselves as better, nobler, higher than the other creatures? Because we were made in the image of Almighty God. And we have a job. And the job is to steward this creation and watch out for the baby squirrels when appropriate. The, it, it's interesting to me how children are just drawn to animals and pictures of animals. It, there's, a, there's an island off the coast of Australia where there are no natural predators. And there's these little cute furry marsupial things called quokkas. And they love people. And you go to that island, and they've never, nobody's ever hurt them. Nothing ever hunts them or tries to eat them. And so these little animals will be like, hi, and they will literally pose for selfies with you, and they look like they're grinning. It is the most adorable thing I have ever seen in my life. Why do we do that? Why will people fly halfway around the world to pose with a rodent? Because there's something inside of us that longs for how it ought to be. There's a, another wonderful picture of a man in a, in a um, he's not, he doesn't have air tanks, but he's in a diving suit with flippers. And, and there's a big blue whale next to him, and he's reaching out, and the whale's reaching out its fin, and they're touching the giant whale. And the story behind the picture is that the whale was caught in a fishing net, and the guy saw this, and he very patiently and carefully, knowing that this whale could kill him with just a flick of its tail, began cutting that net off the whale, and the whale seemed to know held steel to it and it let him cut that net off and in that picture him floating with one arm out and the whale floating upright with its fin out touching is what happened after he threw that net away that picture's gone all around the world it's an amazing picture why do we why do why would you climb in the water with a 60 ton animal that could kill you because you were made in the image of god to steward his creation to care for it let's keep going God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Watch this now. And God said, behold, I have given you, that's people, every plant yielding seed that is on the face of all the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit and you shall have them for food. So what were people eating? Plants. We were vegetarians. Keep going. Not just us. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird in the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw, that every, saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Now, according to that passage, what did the creatures that God created eat? What did God give them for their food? Plants. As much as I hate Brussels sprouts, I think those might have actually come at the fall. You know, they might actually be the work of the devil. But, but that's what we were designed to remember. And when Christ returns. And there's this reuniting, this putting of the puzzle pieces back in their proper order so that the picture makes sense. Everything happens in him, and everything in him happens that Paul speaks of in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 10. What will the creatures eat? Well, let's turn to Isaiah 11. So if you go to Psalms, which is halfway in your Bible, and then keep going towards the back of the New Testament. We'll get to Isaiah pretty quick after Psalms is done. Isaiah chapter 11, verses 6 through 9. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb, and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat, and the calf and the lion and the fatted calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The 
nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra, and the weaned child shall put his hand in the adder's den, and they shall not hurt or destroy in all my holy mountain. For the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord, as the waters cover the sea. And then in Isaiah chapter 65, uh, it says in one of the verses there, the wolf and the lamb shall graze together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. So if at the beginning of things, the crocodiles ate apples and bananas, and when Christ comes back, all the crocodiles will eat apples and bananas, why is it that the monkeys are still eating the apples and the bananas, but the crocodiles are now eating the monkeys? What happened? What happened was the fall of man. You see, Adam was God's vice regent over the whole of the creation. He had supernatural powers above the whole created order. And his animals obeyed him. They served him. The ground served him. It's interesting, isn't it, that, that he's told to cultivate the garden. And, and cultivating is easy. And then comes the curse. And the first thing he's told is it's going to get hard. And you're going to till the ground. And instead of producing food, it's going to it's going to produce thorns and thistles, and you're going to earn your bread by the sweat of your brow, and that ground is, itself is going to rebel against you until one day you die because you swallowed the serpent that reclaimed you back to himself. Now, these animals obeyed him. They served him. They had no fear of him, and none of them from the smallest to the greatest would have harmed him or harmed one another. Now, if you have a, a powerful magnet and you stick something like this Allen key to it, say that this magnet is God and this Allen key is Adam. And then you can see that the magnet is magnetized, or the, the Allen key gets magnetized, and it'll hold other things. That only works so long as this Allen key is connected to the magnet. What happens when you take it out? It falls apart. It'll stay magnetized for a little while, but it falls apart. Well, human beings, man, was united with God in a special way, and then all of creation came under. And the minute he fell away from God, fell away from the source of his power, the whole created order fell down in the jungles of Africa. When Adam fell, he disconnected himself from God's power, and everything became a ruin. And that ruin may have been all at once, or it may have been more gradual. I, I suspect it was more gradual, and, and here's why. If you want to, you can. Turn to Genesis back in the Old Testament again, Genesis chapter 9. We see something interesting. Genesis 9, verses 1 through 3. This is after the flood. Noah has exited the boat. The animals are gone. And God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The fear of you and the dread of you shall be on every beast of the earth and upon every bird of the heaven and upon everything that creeps on the ground and the fish in the sea. Into your hand they are delivered. Every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. As I gave you the green plants, I now give you everything. But you shall not eat flesh with its life, that is, with its blood. As for your lifeblood, I will require a reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man, I will require the reckoning. kind of a ugly repeat of Genesis 1 and 2, isn't it? Be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth. Only now, don't eat, eat only the plants. Eat the things. Perhaps in the post-flood era, the produce of the earth is not as healthy or as plentiful. 
as it was before. Listen to what the wonderful old Puritan commentator Matthew Henry has to say on this passage. Hitherto, most saints, man had been confined to feed only upon the produce of the earth, fruits and herbs and roots and all sorts of corn and milk. So it was the first grant in Genesis 1.29. But the flood, having perhaps washed away much of the virtue of the earth and so rendered its fruits less pleasing and less nourishing, God now enlarged the grant and allowed man to eat flesh, which perhaps man himself never thought of till now that God directed him to it, nor had any more desire to it than a sheep has to suck blood like a wolf. But now man is allowed to feed upon flesh as freely and as safely as upon the green herb. And it may well be that the animals only started eating each other then. It may be that they you know, ate each other, that they ate each other after the fall, but before the flood, we don't know. But it may be that they didn't do it till man did it. But sin is that which then brought decay and terror and death and futility and nature, red of tooth and claw, into the world. And then when we look at Romans 8, the, the call to worship this morning, we see what Jesus wants us to see about all of this. Romans 8. We're almost there. Romans 8, verses 18 through the first part of 24. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed in us or to us. Now watch this. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. In the Greek there, it literally is, it stands on tiptoe. Like your little child, stand, stand up and feel the sun. Here it is, he's watching. The whole created order, he says, stands on tiptoe waiting to, to see what's going to happen to us, waiting for our resurrection, waiting for our recovery, waiting for our redemption, our wholeness. It waits eager, with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we hope. Notice what he says there. He doesn't say the world. He says the whole creation. It may well be that the fall of Adam affected things throughout the whole But there's a decay principle now in the whole universe that wasn't there before because we fell. We were God's vice regents over creation. We were the ones who ran things for him as he wanted them run. At some level, somehow, says Paul, the natural order knows that it is in a bondage to decay and death and rot. And it knows that our restoration is its freedom as well. And somehow it's saying, come on, Jesus, restore them. Restore them so that we can be restored too along with them. You've redeemed their spiritual parts. Hurry up. Redeem their bodies. Because when their bodies are redeemed, we can be restored. The created order says, Jesus, we're tired of the futility. We're tired of the bondage. We're tired of the corruption. We're tired of the fear and the terror and the pain and the blood. Set them free so that they set us free. Christian, in Christ, that is your when he comes, he will sum up all things. The first Adam, everything was tied together in him on earth, but he failed and it all fell apart. The last Adam will come and he will tie up everything on earth again and tie it to heaven and he will never fail. And we are secure. Everything is secure as it is summed up in him. 
that is your inheritance. Christ will put all the shattered pieces together and tie them back up in him, and then you will go back to ruling the world as you were designed to do, and we will be restored to our primitive dignity, our primitive glory and lust. It will not be simply as if Adam had never fallen. It will be as if Adam had never fallen lust. Because all of heaven will be united to all of the created order in Christ in a way that it wasn't before. Listen to what C.S. Lewis says in The Weight of Glory and uh, with this I close. He says, it is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. Now he's not talking error there. He's just talking about we're going to look like something people would worship now if they didn't know any better. To remember that the dullest and most uninteresting person you talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be strongly tempted to worship, or else a horror and a corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or the other of those destinations. It is in the light of these overwhelming possibilities. It is with the awe and the circumspection proper to them that we should conduct all of our dealings with one another. All of our friendships, all love, all play, all politics, there are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Nation, culture, art, civilization, these are mortals. And their life is to ours as the life of a gnat. But it is to immortals with whom we joke, marry, work with, snub, exploit, immortal horrors or everlasting splendor. This does not mean that we are to be perpetually solemn. We must play, but our merriment must be that of a kind, and it is in fact the merriest kind, which exists between people who have from the outset taken each other seriously. No flippancy, no superiority, no presumption, and our charity must be a real and costly love with deep feelings of esteem, in spite of which we love the sinner. No mere tolerance or indulgence with charity's love or flippancy's praise and charity's merriment. Next to the blessed sacrament itself, your, nature is the, your neighbor is the holiest object of gentle will be able to do things visionarily. We will be tasked with jobs that we say, there's no way anybody could do that. You, you know how Adam gardened? Jesus told us. He said, one day you'll be able to say to that tree, you, sit, go, go be planted in this tree, and it will be still. That mountain, it's blocking the light. Move it over there. Mountain will grow. Uh, have you ever noticed that in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, when somebody's been around God, they glow? Like Moses, when he was with God face to face, as the man is with his friend, that he had to put a veil on because it freaked the children of Israel out because he glowed? I think, I can't prove this, but I think that the way Adam and Eve knew that their sin had destroyed their relationship with God is that when they walked with God, they glowed. And when they sinned, the light shone out. And what does it mean to be glorified? It's related to a radiant shining. That you will glow. We say a pregnant woman, oh, she's just glowing. Or uh, uh, grandparents, when they see their grandchildren, oh, there's a glow on their face, right? And we kind of mean it. They, they look different, don't they? They glow. One day, you will glow Father, there is so much in your scripture that is a mystery, and you've revealed little hints of little things that we can just fasten onto and say, boy, I wonder what that means. I wonder what that's going to be like. And you tell us that we can't even imagine. Eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has the heart of man even imagined what you have prepared for those who love you. Teach us, Lord, 
that you know us better than we know ourselves. You know what gives us joy. You know what gives us purpose, what makes our hearts beat fast, what we're excited about. You've made us that way, and you've crafted a perfect position in your heaven just for us, custom-made for the secret signature of each soul. And when we behold you in your glory,